0: It would be too much to claim that fear of clerical necromancy was a major source of pre-Reformation anti-clericalism, in Boccaccio, for example, when clerics make pretence of magical power this is exercised in the service of their lechery, and lust rather than magic is the focus of the satire. But the realization that certain clerics were dabbling in conjuration could hardly have made a positive contribution to the image of the clergy at a time when for other reasons there was increasing distrust of priests and priestcraft. 28 If we neglect the literature of necromancy we cannot grasp what it is that the humanist mags, Marsilio Ficino, Giovanni Pico, Johannes Reuchlin, Johannes Trithemius and others, so vigorously claimed not to be doing, or what they were often suspected of doing despite their protestations. Even the rise of the witch trials in the 15th century is related to increasing consciousness of this explicitly demonic magic. It was surely in large part because they were aware of the demonic magic described in these manuals and evidently practiced in their midst that orthodox authorities often became skeptical about the notion of non-demonic, natural magic. They seem to have misconstrued ordinary magical procedures, interpreting them as working, like necromancy, through demonic agency. 29. Cesare Lanza hinted at the connection when he remarked in 1579. Today a lowly little woman does more than all the necromancers accomplished in the ancient world. Thirty insofar as necromancers contributed to the plausibility of claims about witches, they bear indirect responsibility for the rise of the European witch trials in the 15th and following centuries. To the extent that these early witch trials focused on female victims, they thus provide a particularly tragic case of women being blamed and punished for the misconduct of men women who were not invoking demons could more easily be thought to do so at a time when certain men were in fact so doing. Natural magic was always, in some quarters, a suspect category, and understandably so, its mechanisms remained unclear, and its claims to empirical confirmation were perhaps even by medieval standards not impressive. Demonic magic, in contrast, was a straightforward notion, and, its efficacy was easy for virtually all medieval people to believe small. Wonder if for some authorities in late medieval Europe this became the paradigmatic form of magic, and if other forms came to be interpreted as implicitly grounded in demonic aid, so that a theologian, an inquisitor, or an educated lay judge might be skeptical about claims that some magic was natural rather than demonic. More generally, knowledge of this material adds significantly to our understanding of later medieval clerical culture. A society that had a surplus of clergy inevitably spawned an underemployed and largely unsupervised clerical underworld capable of various forms of mischief including necromancy and indeed this underworld seems to have been the primary locus for this explicitly demonic magic not all those accused of conjuring demons were clerics the charge was attached at times to laymen and occasionally women 31 but the examples cited already suggest that clerics were disproportionately represented and when we examine the Munich handbook of necromancy in following chapters what we will find there is a characteristically clerical form of magic, using Latin texts and presupposing knowledge of mainstream ritual. 32 The beliefs and ritual operations found in necromancy mimic those of established rites, somewhat as the threads are the same on both sides of a tapestry, and the patterns they form on the underside are recognizably related to those on the front. One might even suggest that a culture in which ritual occupies so central a place will naturally, if not inevitably, engender forbidden rituals, somewhat as the production of a tapestry necessarily produces on the underside a distorted version of the intended image. The study of late medieval necromancy gives an exceptionally clear and forceful picture of the abuses likely to arise in a culture so keenly attentive to ritual display of sacerdotal power. Our own society, more fascinated with sexuality and its abuse, has its own concerns about miscreant priests and their abuse of young boys, the clerical misconduct most feared in the late Middle Ages was of a different order. Demonic magic and the theory of ritual I have spoken of demonic magic as the underside of the tapestry of late medieval ritual culture, more must be said about the character of magic as ritual. If the book of magic is on the one hand a magical book, an object possessing preternatural power, a habitation in which demons may even be supposed to reside. It is on the other hand a script whose formulas are meant for enactment, a guide for ritual action. The Book of Magic thus functions both as a repository of magical power and as a guide to magical process, a liturgical compendium with rites to be observed, scripts to be enacted. The rites of magic suggest questions analogous to those raised by any rites, even if they differ in the sources of power they mean to exploit. Three issues in the study of ritual are of particular relevance to our understanding of a necromantic text. The relationship between official, or public, and unofficial, or private, ritual, the efficacy ascribed to ritual, and the role of language in ritual. Emile Durkheim and Marcel Morse took the chief difference between religion and magic to lie in their social context. To paraphrase their perception, religion is the official observance of a collectivity, such as a church, while magic is the unofficial practice of an individual, often on behalf of a client. But if one takes religion to be the spiritual practice of a community specifically acting as a community, one excludes private prayer, while if one takes it to be the spiritual practice sanctioned by a community, even when carried out individually, one relegates any and all disapproved practice, regardless of the grounds for disapproval, to the category of magic. 35 A. Duffy has emphasized that magical or superstitious formulas in charms share a common vocabulary with liturgical prayers which already suggests the need for a nuanced sense of the relationship between religion and magic. Complexity of this relationship may be seen with particular clarity in the comparison of exorcism and conjuration. As we shall see in a later chapter, in medieval parlance these terms were used interchangeably, and the practices are in fact in all ways but one identical. What we now call exorcism was practiced by an individual, usually a cleric, although some laypeople claimed the role who addressed demons with formal commands, whose power was derived chiefly from the sacred realities invoked in the formulas of command. What we now call conjuring was also practiced by an individual, usually a cleric, who addressed demons with formal commands essentially identical to those of the exorcists, again powerful by virtue of appeal to sacred realities. In neither case was the command automatically efficacious, Both exorcists and conjurers reckoned on the possibility that the demons might resist their invocations and refuse compliance, in which case the rituals of command would be redoubled. Both the exorcist and the conjurer were engaged in spiritual wrestling matches with the demons, and in both cases they were keenly aware of the dangers. Exorcism was in principle carried out on behalf of a demoniac, conjurations could be done as ways of afflicting enemies, and could be carried out on behalf of clients. In both cases, then, the ritual performer was acting as an individual but within a social context. If exorcisms were allowed, at least to authorised clergy, while conjuring was prohibited to all, it was because of the one key difference – the exorcists' intent was to dispel the demons, while the conjurers was to summon them, and mainstream opinion held that it was better to be rid of malign spirits than to invite them into one's life. Study of conjurations in subsequent chapters will suggest that there is no other essential difference between this form of magic and religious practices, and that it is better to perceive demonic magic as an illicit form of religion than as a cultural phenomenon distinct from religion. The efficacy of magical rites, like that of any rituals, can be seen as real, objective, and, within the historical culture, rational, or as emotional, subjective, and symbolic, the magician's operations may be viewed as actually accomplishing certain ends, or as symbolic expressions of their emotions and their desires. In Ludwig Wittgenstein's classic formulation, magic, gives manifestation to a wish, it expresses a wish. 36 Echoing such earlier formulations, Joseph Gusfield suggests that, in symbolic behavior the action is ritualistic and ceremonial in that the goal is reached in the behavior itself rather than in any state it brings about. 37. This pragmatist perception of ritual may be useful as a way for an observer to excuse someone else's otherwise irrational practice, but there is little evidence that most practitioners themselves view the effect of their rights as merely expressive and not objectively effective. 38. Magic rituals in medieval Europe were clearly intended to produce results, to arouse passion, to drive people mad, to find stolen goods, and so forth. Judicial evidence makes it clear that the practitioners, The clients and the victims all expected magic to have objective effect, and when it did not this was because the specific practitioners were inept or did not perform rituals with sufficient strength to command the demons they summoned. 39 In one sense, however, Gusfield's formulation does apply to magic. Magical rites, like prayers of petition, may be used for practical ends, but any goals extrinsic to the ritual presuppose an effect intrinsic to it. The prayers and actions that constitute orthodox ritual first of all transform the relationship between the praying person and God, as also the relationship the persons prayed for, with others in whose company one is praying, and with others throughout history who have said the prayer in question. If such ritual is transformative, the transformation is in the first instance one that occurs within the ritual itself. The participants in the ritual become different, and the network of relations in which they stand is reconfigured. Even if no further results ensue, for the duration of the ritual the world of the participant is transformed. Normally one undertakes a ritual with the expectation of further, extrinsic changes, moral or physical, but these are secondary, at least in a logical sense, however important they are to the participant. They are secondary because they presuppose a prior change within the ritual itself, an empowerment of the participant that then makes extrinsic change possible. Ritual can be effective for other purposes only if it first is effective as ritual. It can have secondary efficacy only by virtue of its primary efficacy. The principle holds in the case of magical rites, and perhaps most especially those involving demonic magic, even if they are undertaken for the sake of some practical end, that purpose can be accomplished only because within the ritual there is a transformed relationship between the magician and God, between the magician and the demons and perhaps also between the magician and other humans. Calling upon the aid of God, the magician seeks power over the demons, the primary purpose of the ritual is to build sufficient power that the magician may compel the spirits to do his will. Only if within the ritual itself this transformation of power is attained can the magician accomplish any other. goal. The efficacy of ritual ex opere operato must be perceived in this light. Thomas Aquinas was stating the common perception of theologians in the later Middle Ages when he recognized the Mass and sacraments as having objective effect independent of the disposition and moral status of the celebrant and minister. That ritual was inherently efficacious, ex opere operato, apart from any further effect to be gained by virtue of the minister's or participant's disposition, ex opere operantis, by no means meant that the rite was magical. Whether an operation qualified as magic or not depended chiefly on which powers it invoked, if it called upon celestial or manifest natural powers it was not magic, but if it appealed to demonic or occult natural powers it was magic. 40 Rituals that called upon angelic aid formed an ambiguous category, possibly but not necessarily magical, but mainly because the identity of the angel summoned might be in doubt. 41. A ritual, magical or otherwise, could have efficacy ex opere operato precisely because it transformed the status of the performer and his or her relationship with God, with other spirits, and with humans. It was clearly this fear of the efficacy of magic ex opere operato that led an actor playing in the Jew Saint Bob in 1470 to make a notarized counterpact declaring that, by the invocations and anathemas of the demons which he makes in the play, he does not intend to speak from the heart but only in the manner of the play, and that on that account the enemy of humankind, the devil, should not have any claim on his soul. 42 But the force of magical ritual was not in all respects analogous to that of other rites. Ordinary prayer and official ritual assume that the spirits invoked are in general well disposed toward humankind, and enter readily into a helping relationship. A praying person's invocation of God or a saint is an appeal to a benevolent being. In this respect the rituals of demonic magic differ from. Other rites, they invoke fallen spirits taken, By the necromancers as well as by their critics, to be unwilling, uncooperative, inimical, and treacherous. The operations of demonic magic, more than other rituals, are thus explicit contests of wills. The necromancer recognizes a need to heap conjuration upon conjuration, and to buttress these formulas with supporting means of power, precisely because the demons are reluctant to come, and if they come, will do everything in their power to escape the magician's control, threaten him. And deceive him. To gain the upper hand in the contest, the magician must hold the strongest possible means for power over the demons, and must adjure them in the name of all that is holy to come in non threatening form, to cause no harm, and to tell only the truth. Yet all of these factors, far from undercutting Gusfield's analysis, actually strengthen it. They show how vitally important it was for the magician to focus his attention and his energies on the immediate consequences of his ritual action. His rites could be efficacious for extrinsic purposes only if they were first effective as rites, as ritual contests with cunning and powerful spiritual adversaries who could nevertheless be induced to fulfill his command. The function of language within magical ritual is a subject to be explored in detail when we examine formulas of conjuration in a later chapter. The general topic is one S.J. Tambia has discussed, with focus on the use of special languages, Or the use of elements from various languages, in magical practice. Forty-three necromantic conjurations of the late Middle Ages are almost entirely in Latin, which marks them not as specifically magical but as similar to ordinary liturgical formulas. Some experiments give formulas in what is said to be Chaldean, thus making an appeal to the authority of ancient Jewish magic analogous to that of later Christian Kabbalists. But when a child medium is used, he is sometimes licensed to conjure the spirits in the vernacular. On one level one might say that the choice of language is a matter of indifference, the demons or other spirits being conjured know all human tongues and can be addressed effectively in any of them. Yet in a different way the selection of language was important, because it was only formulas in Latin that were clearly related to the prayers of mainstream liturgy. Necromancers who had command of Latin and could use it to demonstrate the groundedness of their rites in the liturgical tradition of the Church could no doubt gain readier acceptance as authentic masters of their art. And even if demons could understand other languages, they seemed, like God, to pay special attention when addressed in Latin. In any case, within medieval culture, magical words were seen as effective not per se but rather as means for evoking the effective presence of the archetypal powers to which they refer. Magical language is thus not in a simple sense the cause of efficacy but rather its occasion. The cause is a network of forces released and coordinated by the magician's verbal cue. The situation is analogous to that of the eucharist. The priest's utterance of the words of consecration is not the cause of transubstantiation but rather the divinely ordained occasion for divine intervention. One might suppose that this distinction is too subtle to have been clear to the common necromancer, but in fact the point is clearly articulated in the conjurations themselves, which not only acknowledge but insist that the sources of their own power are the archetypal forces they bring to bear upon the situation at hand. The magic we are dealing with, then, borrows the conventions of liturgical prayer and has efficacy resembling that of the sacraments. In other respects, however, the fitting comparison is not so much with liturgy and sacraments as with the private devotions that were proliferating in the late Middle Ages. And the analogue to the Book of Magic is less the Missal than the private prayer book. Ritual magic and devotions alike showed how liturgical formulas could be adapted for private and domestic use, indeed, one central point of devotionalism was to provide a network of connections between church and home, bonding them in an increasingly complex relationship, and imparting to the home some of the fervor and sacrality of the church. Magic resembles the devotionalism of the Books of Hours and Other prayer books in its translation of official rites into an unofficial and largely private setting. Forty-four books of magic, like books of devotion, proliferated in the expanding marketplace of privately owned and privately read texts. Plan of this Book The following chapter will introduce the manuscript to which this study is chiefly devoted. Subsequent chapters fall into two blocks. Chapters 3 to 5 examine the experiments according to the chief purposes for which they are performed: entertainment, illusionist experiments, power over other individuals, psychological ones, and knowledge, divinatory ones. The chief point of these chapters is to show that within this body of material there are in fact fairly clearly distinguishable subtraditions and to sketch the common characteristics of each. Chapters 6 to 8, then, analyze the sources and techniques used to gain magical power, in particular the conjurations, and the demonology assumed by these conjurations, the magic circles, and the formulas of astral magic, techniques that cut across the categories discussed in the earlier chapters, and thus represent elements of continuity within the diversity of necromantic practice. Throughout the book I will give translations, my own, unless otherwise. Noted, of source material for the study of late medieval necromancy, most of these passages are from the Munich Handbook, to give a sense of the cultural context, I have included some material from other writings of the magicians and from writings about and against demonic magic. I have opted not to give a complete translation of the Munich Handbook, both specialists and general readers, I assume, will be better served by selective translation of representative and particularly interesting passages, selected perhaps disproportionately but not exclusively from the earlier sections of the handbook, integrated into my analysis. This option seems especially appropriate given the largely repetitive nature of the material, and the need to situate it in its cultural context. The Latin text is, in any case, available at the end of the volume for those who wish to probe more deeply.